0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear, open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to com slash Jack. And I guess I want to first start because it's... I don't know what you'd call it, Easter Monday or something like that. It's the Monday after Easter, and it's insanely wild spring out there um, from all that thankful March rain. Um, And, of course, Easter and Passover and all of the various kind of spring holidays with the eggs and the bunnies and things are really the ancient archetypal celebration of the renewal of life, of of the fertility of life and the rebirth after a long winter. Um, And one of the questions is how do you navigate death and rebirth? Because there's a way in which we're all dying and being reborn all the time. I had the opportunity after a retreat recently to drive back into Woodacre, I now live in Fairfax, to the house which I had helped create and where I lived for 30 years um, and it's kind of wild looking at it it's lovely some a young couple are there who are about to have kids and it's the perfect place for that we raised our daughter um, and I thought wow that was a life wasn't it and it's all gone you know and actually only a few people even remember what happened there and how it cre- was created and then that will be gone and things are really they appear we experience them and they're gone like your childhood, for example, you know, or Tutankhamun or the dinosaurs, you know, or Y2K, if you remember that, you know, or, or, um, you know, cassette tapes or whatever it is. It's like stuff happens and then it disappears. And what do we do with that? Um, yeah, it seems. That although we thought ourselves permanent, says the Buddha, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. So that's some medicine there, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. But this is our human human incarnation is designed this way. This is our human lot. And so how to... How to deal with this? Now, there is in Colorado a woman who made uh, a kind of ritual work of art that I talk about sometimes, called the Salt Monument. She made a kind of temple for it, and in the middle is a giant glass or lucite crystal that turns every twenty-four hours, and it's filled with seven and a half billion crystals of salt, one for each human being on the earth. And as the priestess of the salt monument, every evening she goes in and takes this beautiful ritual container and from the bottom of it pours out 200,000 grains of salt for the 200,000 people that died that day. Think about that, this day on earth. And she says some prayers over it and does a kind of ritual return to the earth. And then every morning she comes in And she pours in another ritual container of 250,000 grains of salt for the 250,000 babies that were born. will be born that day. That's us. You know, we're coming and going, baby. (laughs) That's just how it works, right? And our practice of mindfulness and loving awareness gives us the capacity to be with birth and death and change, the inevitability of it, from the place of a witnessing, loving awareness or a place of balance or wisdom. Now, it ain't that easy. We live in a time of toxic politics where there's a lot of fear and racism and terrorism and, you know, all those things, and you look and you go, oh my gosh, what is happening? You know, worldwide terrorism, what's happening to the climate, what's happening in our politics, what's gonna happen? That's on one side. And then on the other side there's a million acts of goodness every single day between gestures and care and and the blooming trees of the spring and the unbearable beauty of the earth along with the suffering and the greed and the and the uh, idiocy and so forth. And we could have a small vision about it. There was a guy I think he was a Texas oilman not to say anything about Texas but maybe a little bit about the brashness of it, who was wealthy, and he went to Picasso's studio to buy a Picasso, because he could, you know, and um, showing around, and he said to Picasso, why don't you paint things more like they are? Imagine saying that to him. I I won't do the accent, because I'm not very good. My daughter said you're not allowed to do that anymore, so I won't do the text. But anyway... um, and Picasso said, what do you mean the way they are? And he said, well, like here. And he pulled out his wallet and he pulled out a, you know, a photograph of his wife like that. And Picasso held it up and he said, hmm, she's rather flat and small, isn't she? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a way in which we can have a very rigid view of things and how they're supposed to be. And that small sense of self... That we think we know how what's real and how things supposed to be is very limited, but there's something bigger going on than, than our ideas about it. Um, as I say so often, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. So there is an invitation in the meditation practice, and um, the Buddhist texts begin, "O nobly born, oh you who." are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones. Remember who you are. Remember your inherent dignity, your capacity for compassion. This is your birthright. And make room for, let go and make room for this possibility. Uh, because here we are in this beautiful springtime, you know, and um, there's something mysterious that's also true. As it said, there are some questions that can't be answered by Google, right? <laughs> Who are we? What is, how do we navigate this? What is this for? This is a Zen story from third grade. Ruth remembers being a girl, daughter of a sharecropper in South Carolina, one of 10 kids living in a little cabin. One day in spring... Her third grade teacher said there would be a talent show. Little Ruth went home troubled, thinking, what talent do I have? She couldn't sleep that night, paced the porch before the field. Then the clouds parted and the moon, almost full, filled her face and turned the boards of the porch into blue and illuminated everything with its glorious moonlight. Her little mouth dropped open and she felt like there was something magic and she was a part of it. When asked the next day, she said her talent was seeing the moon. So there's something that we're being asked to do, to see um, in a more timeless way, to live from that wisdom and that reality. Um, And then as we open that space of seeing in a new way, with a kind of willingness and courage, then we get what Zorba called the whole catastrophe. We get the magnificence of it, and we get the ocean of tears. We get the beauty, and we get the tragedy of it. This is human incarnation. Anybody not have that, by the way? It's just one checking here to see. You can have your eight dollars back, right? Okay. So what do we do then? What we want is to wait for a kind of an opening in it. You know, like that little girl on the porch not knowing, and then she waited and, ah, now the moonlight comes in to show me something new um, with our willingness. And so we allow ourselves to turn our attention and our hearts and our goodwill to this mystery of who am I? How do I navigate birth and death and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. am I always kind of grasping at this and afraid of that or is there some more noble and wise way to move through all of this change but if you open as you know Zorba says with the catastrophe not only is there the beauty of the moon and the spring but you also open to the ocean of tears your worries for the earth and what we're doing to it, called climate change, your own personal grief and sadness for the losses you had or the anger or the doubt about how to live in this world. Um, and those two are vast. And it's not so easy. Here's James Baldwin, such a magnificent writer and, you know, visionary. He says, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here not in a merely personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace, not in the infantile American sense of being made happy by stuff or someone. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? Thank you, James. But in the tough and universal sense of quest, And daring and courage and growth. It's a different meaning of love than the love of gratification. Um, it's the love of willingness to show up for this life fully. And that takes, you know, awareness and attention and courage and love. And periodically, you will die. I mean, yes, you're gonna die anyway, that's right, we know that, and we've got the statistics and the mortuary is waiting for you, I promise you, they've got it all figured out. But you're gonna have other deaths as you go along. And the person who, really being on the way, writes the Zen teacher, Carl Fried Durkheim, who falls upon hard times in the world, will not as a consequence turn to those friends who offer refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that may they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. So spring comes, but it also comes after winter. And rebirth comes after death. Um, And that's the way it seems to work in this life. And you have to let go of this to move into that. Or you have to go through the dark night to come to some other dimension of, of being. And it requires a deep trust. Again, Pablo Neruda, that line I love, where he writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There's something so large that we are a part of life. We are life, that no matter what we do as human beings, there's some bigger force, because we're a part of that, that's going to push the weeds and the grass through the cracks in the stone and the sidewalk tennessee williams wrote the violets and the mountains have broken the rocks there's something about life that will renew itself with you in some way or without you it just does and you begin to trust it and then you see all right here's the toxic politics you may have noticed that and you know um hl mencken the great um Political commentator, 1920s, right? The whole aim of politics is to frighten and menace the populace with an endless series of hobgoblins, almost all exaggerated and unreal, as a way to gain power. Thank you for your analysis, you know. Okay, be afraid, be really afraid, and I am going to, you know, make it all better for you, and the world won't be dangerous again, because I'll take care of it all you know, so what to do with it. I mean, yes, vote, yes, you know, act in some way, but also turn off the damn news for a while. Gandhi took a day, a week in the middle of bringing down the British Empire in silence just to walk outside and listen to his heart and try to hear something more eternal than the battle he was in. This is from Veronica Patterson poet. She writes, after you have compared the candidates' slippery platforms, say over and over again the names of things, the clean nouns, weeping birch, tanager, damask rose. Read field guides, atlases, gravestones. At the store, bless each apple by kind, Macintosh, wine sap, delicious, Jonathan... Enunciate the vegetables and herbs, okra, cilantro, calendula. After a speech compromising the environment, recite the tough, silky structure of spider webs, ladder web, mesh web, funnel. Chant the spiders, comb footed, round headed, garden cross, feather legged, ogre faced. Remember that most short verbs are ethical hatch, grow, spin, trap, eat. Dig deep pronounce clearly, pull the words in over your head, and hole up until it's time to hatch. (laughs) Something like that. So, you know, her advice is not to get too engaged in it. I'm not saying whether you should or not, because there is also a responsibility, and I'm not trying to be kind of, I'm not trying to say there isn't something um, that really needs our attention. But there's a way in which you can get wound up in that and forget the vastness of it and what really matters. And it is scary because, you know, sometimes it's a train wreck and there's a lot of collateral damage to thousands and millions of human lives. So it's something that we do have to pay attention to. But we also have to listen in a new way for an opening, for listen without so much being in the middle of it, without attachment to it and say, well, wow, you know, I guess I could read Machiavelli and Sun Tzu as well, because they're sort of describing a little what's happening, strategy. This is interesting. This is how human beings are trying to solve problems, and some of it is really messed up, but it's not a new thing. We're actually part of this. This is how humanity does it. And step back a bit and say, how, what can I do? What can make a difference? I got a story that was sent to me today, and i'd spent some time in israel and palestine visiting all these giving some teachings and visiting also various peacemaking groups and one of the things that's that's most both heartbreaking and important about at least what i saw there is that what you get in the news is all the conflict and all the you know suicide bombings and all the shootings of palestinian youth and all of those kind of things that's what makes the news. But there's 200 groups that are doing amazing cross-border peace connection work. The the people who are replanting olive groves, and I met with the former combatants for peace, and the grieving or bereaved mothers from both sides, and the teenage Palestinian and Israeli groups that are coming together. There's, There's hundreds of those as well of goodwill that never make the news. So this is a story of a group that was doing peacemaking work on both sides, and it was a group of Israelis and a, and, a, and Americans who went over to do some peacemaking work, first in Israel and then into Palestine, and they were coming back, and they were bringing a Palestinian man with them for another group meeting in Israel recently. And... um they came up to the gate, and he'd been lucky. Somehow the computer missed that he was an activist in some way, so he got a permit to cross the border. And they all went up. They were in their little bus, and they were, had a special meeting coming up. And the soldier who was there, was, which was a young woman with her machine gun and stuff, said to the Palestinian, your permit, you have to go through that other gate. This is not for Palestinians. It's an hour away. You've got to get there, and maybe they'll let you through. And it was very cursor, you know. Uh, um, just doing the soldier thing. You're not allowed, so forth. And she said, "I looked at this woman, young woman in her uniform with her machine gun, and she was very stern. But every time she did that, she also had um, had her hair pulled back, and there was this long black hair and the kind of, you know." tied up a little bit and she'd flop her head and she said, Her voice was saying no 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 and her hair was saying something different. (laughs) And I didn't judge her. I just saw she was in a difficult situation and she was a human being. And I just looked at her, this older woman, I said, I know it's complicated. Is there any way you can find a way to help us? We have to join our friends in the South. We have to do it fast. This is a group and this man is really part of it and we can't leave without him. There's some way. And she paused for a minute and put her gun to the side. She saw, she moved, there was a bunch of keys and she said, you see that gate? If he crosses it quickly and calmly, he can walk five minutes and take a taxi to this other place five minutes, you can meet him and it'll be all right. I saw the opening and I honored her and we responded. And, you know, I was looking at her, she got a little bit calmer. We talked a little bit about how hard it was. I asked her, how is it to be a soldier? She Said, it's terrible. I go home and I, you know, I don't smile all week and now I'm supposed to be happy when I go home to see my mother. Um, I looked at this dark, slender young girl in front of me, young enough to meet my daughter, and I became so curious. I wanted to ask her about her hair. What's the story? I was convinced that this hair had its own language, so I did. And she said, it's a reminder that I am a woman, that I'm born into life to love. I tend to forget this in the uniform, and I've forgotten how to smile with so much suffering around. But then my hair slaps my face, it blows, and reminds me I'm a woman. No one can bury this fact under any kind of uniform. When I'm out of here, I will work for peace like you. But now she was speaking the same language as her hair, and her hair was soft and calm, you know. So there's something in the troubled times in which you're asked not to take that into yourself, but to step back and sense the the play of life and then look for your opening, because it will be there with another person or in a political way or in a, you know, human, just in the human-to-human way. Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. This is from Mark Twain. Kindness is the language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. You can feel the power in his very simple words. So then the question is, all right, how do we do this? We wait for these moments, these openings. You know, we keep a bigger perspective. And the way to do it is without attachment. Ha! (laughs) This is really important. So let me talk about attachment for a little bit. Because all those spiritual books you read say, you shouldn't be attached. You and you and you should stop being so attached or whatever. You go, what the hell does that mean? Really? Because does it mean you have to throw away your family and your clothes and your car and your music and you know, become a monk or a nun and not be attached to your bowl and your robes and whatever happens. Don't see any monk or nun material out here. Maybe a few. But it's got to mean something more than that. And there were, you know, tens of thousands of awakened disciples of the Buddha who weren't monks and nuns. So what, what, what does it mean? Well, one thing about the word that's important, the way that it's used... Is that it has the very different meanings in Western psychology and in Eastern psychology. In Western psychology, attachment is healthy. And you want a secure attachment between a mother or, or, you know, primary caregiver and their child and their baby, especially. And if there's a kind of attention and care and attunement good enough, a good enough, a, then that child realizes they belong here and they internalize this sense of being seen and loved and they feel like they're part of the human race. But if there's not that secure attachment, then you get different things that are called insecure attachment or avoidant attachment where they can't really make healthy relationships because they're not even connected to themselves. And there's all kinds of trauma in that. we all know that in Western psychology, all the kind of healing necessary. So for the West a psychologist talks about the health of attachment. It gets confusing because when you talk about non attachment in the East, does it mean a mother shouldn't be attached to her baby, you know, or does it mean that a partner shouldn't be attached to the their lover? Or, or you know, or that you shouldn't care about things. So you need to start to pay attention to what does it mean to, when I say how to do this, to do it without attachment. What could that mean? And the way you get to know about it is you feel it in your body. This is not like some philosophical thing I'm talking about. There you are. In a little conflict with your kids, which could happen, or a little conflict with your parents, or a little conflict with someone you love, or, you know, families are the best petri dish for all this stuff, but there are other, you know, people that you work with or things like that, and your kids don't like it. When you try to control them, control and attachment are a little bit close together, you'll probably notice. It's one thing to foster them and so forth, but when you try and control them, when you're attached to how they're supposed to be, how do they feel? They hate it and they let you know it, or else they get really, you know, cloudy or go inward or neurotic, whatever they do with it. But it doesn't work very well. Neither does it work with your lovers, quite honestly. I want you to be this way for me, and I want, you know, you should... How how does that fly, right? Or your colleagues and so forth. And you actually can start to, your partners, you start to feel it in your body, the difference between love when you love somebody and attachment when you need them to be a certain way. And they feel very different. One is clinging and holding on, and you, you can feel it viscerally in your gut, in your muscles, in your nervous system. You know what I'm talking about? And so... Non-attachment doesn't mean not relating, but it means to be present without the grasping, without the controlling. It's not in your control anyway. We'll get to that, right? (laughs) So my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to wander around the monastery. You know, he also had a good sense of humor, but he would kind of tootle up to people, especially if it looked like they were having a hard time, and he'd say, are you suffering today? And if they said no, he said, great, and have a beautiful day, lovely spring day, nice to see you. And if they said yes, he'd just look and say, ah, must be attached. Smile and then just toodle <laughs> off again, you know. It was like that directly related, that you're suffering, not your pain, because you'll have pain, not your loss, that's part of joy and sorrow, well, that stuff comes being human incarnation. But your suffering is directly related to how attached you are. That's worth a pause. And then he said, all right. He used to talk about letting go. He said, if you let go a little, you'll be a little happy. If you let go a lot, you'll be a lot happy. If you really let go, you'll be truly happy. But there's something else to say about that, which is that sometimes we translate letting go as getting rid of, oh, I'm afraid. I wanna let go of that fear and not have it come anymore. That's not calling letting go. That's a version, right? I don't want that. So sometimes the translation for letting go is better translated as letting be. Just letting it be the way it is without trying to control it. Sometimes you can let stuff go, but sometimes it's there and it's with you, and you say, okay, let it be. But you don't identify with it. You don't take it personally. You don't hold on to it. I mean, even this wonderful guru I spent time with in India, this Argadab, somebody said, Here you are, you know, you talk about mind vast like space and not being identified with the body and mind. You're this great saint or this sage. Do you ever get angry? Do you ever get upset? He said, Oh, sometimes, you know, if I'm really hungry, and my food doesn't come on time, and it's not there, and so forth. I can get irritated, I can get annoyed. He said, said, but it has nothing to do with me. It's just my body doing its thing. He said, it's like it's there, but who I am is so much bigger than that. It just plays through. I didn't talk to his wife, so we don't know (laughs) know. But then you say, all right, if I'm not attached, then what about Marriage? What about relationship? What about family? What about um, social justice? Or, or what about the care for the things in the world that matter if you're not attached? Isn't that sort of that Buddhist navel-gazing, you know, oh, everything is impermanent and I just let it come and go kind of thing? Hmm? How do you operate then without attachment? there's a different frequency, there's a different um, capacity than control and attachment. And here are some words that describe it. Dedication, commitment, direction, care. So instead of the attachment in a love relationship, it's not I need you to be a certain way and controlling, but. Um, I'm dedicated to this and tend and care, and I want you um, to flower as best you can, so I want the best for you as best I can and for myself. And it's not a clinging, but it's a dedication. You're dedicated to your children. You're dedicated to the work that you do to change the world or to bring something beautiful as an artist or a parent or creative, you know, conscious business. It takes dedication. It takes commitment and takes direction. It can even take a kind of ambition, but a wise ambition. And what does that mean? It means that you're, you're, you're there, but you're not in that controlling place with it. It also means that even though you're not attached, you show up. Because a lot of spiritual practice is really about whether you're avoiding relationship, whether you're avoiding actually be present for for life with its pain and its beauty, and to become noble, dignified, all those lovely kind of adjectives and adverbs, whatever they are grammatically, the you know the qualities that come from meditation where you practice this with all that comes up and then in your life, um, it requires somehow. That you're willing to be present for it, not to turn your gaze away. So I told this story, I don't know, last month, the month before, but I've been telling it just because it's fun. The son of um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, Sakyam Mipam Rinpoche, who's a lama teaching a lot in America, is also a great horseman, their family is. And, you know, he'd lived for a while in Boulder, Colorado. And his favorite horse, Rocky, was a horse that he used for... Dressage and in the ring and sometimes would just gallop out in the plains and things like that. But he decided to take Rocky on a trail ride with some other people way up high, 11,000 feet in the mountains, something like that. Um, Rocky wasn't a trail horse. Trail horses know how to turn around and back up, but this Rocky hadn't done that. And they went for a part of this trail that got very narrow, and there was a thousand-foot drop off down there, and a big cliff there, and some scree. It was not an easy trail, and they got to the hard part. Paused, and uh, Rimbache that llama, the young llama looked, and he thought, "Man, if this, if Rocky slips even a little bit, I'm a goner." And he thought, "But maybe I should just shift over a little to the." Upside, so if he slips, I can sort of jump off the saddle, you know, and maybe I won't go down with him. So he moved his weight a little bit to that side before going on the trail. Rocky stopped at that second, turned his head around and looked at him like, dude, I thought we were in this together, you know. And then the, the llama, the young llama, centers himself back on the saddle. Okay, we're in it. We're in it together. And he relaxed and Rocky relaxed, and then step by step they went across that trail. So to not to to not be attached to not be attached doesn't mean that you're not present. But you're present in a different way. And the secret I always love that little pause there. <laughs> Isn't there a movie called that? Anyway, the secret is to act well without attachment to the outcome because that part is not given to you, how who, how your child is going to turn out, you know, or whether your business will succeed or not or, or your art project or whatever it is or the social justice thing that you do or whatever it happens to be. I mean, I read... Probably every few talks, this passage from Thomas Merton writing to the young activist um, who is discouraged. Do not depend on the hope of results, he says. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you understand this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness the truth of the work itself and in that way um, what you are doing is beginning to trust that you face the right direction you plant the seeds of something that really matter to you and eventually somehow that will bear fruit that's not up to you when the plant grows you water it and you tend it but that's that's not what's given to you in this human incarnation is to act beautifully. Um, and then the world will receive that and it will bear fruit in its in its own time. And there's a sense as you do this again in the non-attachment, kind of a sense of the emptiness of it, if you will. You see what I mean? Like going to my house of thirty years and realizing There are only a handful of people that have any memory of how it was built and what we did and so forth. And then that will be gone too. And it's just like a whole life, that part, 30 years of life disappeared. You know, and things are that way. They're empty because they list, they exist for a time and then they're gone. So what you get to do is tend them and make beautiful things that add to the long term. You know, now it's a beautiful home for somebody else to raise their children in. But it's mysterious. It's not yours to possess. It just isn't. It's a little bit like the serenity prayer, you know. Grant me the... Uh, how does it go? The, 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 ser- the serenity is up to the things that I cannot change, the, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And somehow there's something... Very, very similar in this. And there's a kind of trust that you listen for that opening, like the swish of that Palestinian young woman's hair and realize, okay, she's saying no, but her hair is indicating there's some somebody else under that machine gun in that soldier's uniform. And you wait and you see. And you feel it in your body. You can tell when you're possessed and clinging and so forth, and the people around you know it very well, and you suffer, and the Ajahn Chah would say, oh, must be attached, la la la, you know, and then you realize, oh, maybe I could let it go a little bit. Now, I just had the pleasure of doing a, a retreat myself for part of this March month-long retreat I sat for almost three weeks. And part of the time, it was very quiet, and I got concentrated and dissolved my body into light and samadhi things and stuff. But part of the time, my mind was really busy, much more than I would have liked. Um, Because right before I went on my retreat, in the week before, and the days before, I got a whole bunch of emails from these places that I often teach saying, we're making our 2017 calendar. You know, here we are talking about living in the moment, right? I am... I am scheduled in 2018. It's insane. But anyway, we need to know because we'll save you the space or we won't, but you got to know right away from Kripalu and Omega and Esalen or whatever it happens to be. And then I'm planning this stuff in China and they want to do that in India. And so i got all that stuff and I'm sitting there trying to be quiet. And I know all those have to be answered. And then I'm also worried because a few days before I sat, one of my best friends fell and broke her hip and is in the hospital and then this other person I was tending to whose teenage daughter is really going through a hard time and my mind is just going you have to do, take care of this and you have to fit it all together and you have to do it right away and you get out because otherwise you know, 2017 will be a mess and you've got to do it in a sane way and not do too much and blah. so I keep saying you know later later and it doesn't listen and then I go okay samadhi and I go into this deep Quiet place, but the minute I stop concentrating, it all rushes back in. Um, and I find that unpleasant because I just want to be quiet, you know, and do. But after a while of that, I thought, well, maybe what I have to do, I'll just write down all these things that I'm, you know, worried about or thinking I have to tend to. And in five minutes, I wrote down 45 things of who I have to call, this email, that, and China, and this people in India, and this thing with the Dalai Lama, if I'm lucky, and this thing that I have to tend to with this person in the hospital. And if I'd taken 10 minutes, I'm sure I could have written down 45 more. But I wrote them down, and then I looked at it, and I thought, thank you. Thank you to my mind. I said, you're trying to take care of all this. I'm having a retreat, and you're trying to take care of all this stuff and take care of me. And I just kind of bowed to it. Instead of judging it, I said, thank you for doing all that. My God, you've taken care of a lot of business. (laughs) And and it just relaxed me a little bit. You know, there wasn't quite that little controlling thing. Um, Where's that poem from Kabir? I love it. I'm Indian mystic. He says, friends, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps spinning me out. I gave up my sewn clothes and wore a robe but I noticed one day how well-woven was the cloth. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the wine wants to break its links with the world, it still holds on to something, doesn't it? And so it's just its nature. And the Buddha described our human incarnation, our human lot, as being a river. He actually said it's five rivers, a river of sense experience, a river of feelings, all these feelings. I have a list of 500 feelings that I've got in the, in the printed day before Google. You can Google and it seems to start with the A's angry and antsy and ambivalent and affectionate and amorous and apoplectic. And it just goes on and on and on. Then you go to the B's, bored, bonkers, brokenhearted, you know, <laughs> um, blissed out. And you know, so many. So there's a river of feelings. You know that river. There's a river of sensations. There's a river of perceptions. This is a man, this is a woman, this is a room. There's a way that we've been entrained to perceive the world and organize it. And so we have moment-to-moment perception of things. There is a river of thoughts. And anybody who sat in meditation for, let's say, 30 seconds, oh my gosh, the first insight is the, you know, the waterfall of thoughts. And the point isn't to stop it. The mind secretes thoughts, like the endocrine gland secretes, you know, hormones. It just does, right? And then there's the river of consciousness. And the difference between someone who's liberated or awake, says the Buddha, and an ordinary person is an ordinary person has these five rivers of sense experience, the river of all the changing feelings, the river of changing perceptions, the river of changing thoughts, the river of changing consciousness, and the one who is liberated has the same five rivers, only they don't cling to them, that's all. They're not identified, they don't take it personally. That's all. That's the definition of, of freedom. So freedom comes through this training that we're doing of loving awareness where you notice the feelings, you notice the thoughts, and say, oh yeah, thank you for helping me, whatever, and you don't take them so personally. And this is sadness and this is grief and this is joy. It's part of our our human lot, and you don't identify as much, particularly with the thoughts. As one great lama said, the mind creates both samsara and nirvana, yet there's nothing much to it. It's just made of thoughts. When we realize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. And so you start to see that thoughts are, you know, they're ephemeral, they're like clouds. And not only that, you can have an opinion about a person or about a politics or about a whatever it is, and then you can have the opposite thought, you know, three days or three years later. You know, oh, yeah, but my thoughts are really important and real. Well, good luck, you know. <laughs> so the difference is to not grasp and to not identify and to not take it so personally, which is part of what you learn as you sit doesn't really matter what happens when you sit here. Your body hurts. Your body is pleasant at ease. Your mind quiets. Your mind is full of plans or storms. Your emotions come. Your emotions go. Someone says, one sitting better than another. Not really. The question is, can you find the place of balance and loving awareness that can allow your humanity to rise and fall like waves of the ocean, and you become the space of balance and understanding and compassion for all of it. And the point isn't that it's supposed to be a grim duty. As I say, the point isn't to perfect yourself. You've tried that for a long time and see how far you got, right? Okay, I did my therapy, I went to the gym, I did a diet, you know. Okay, how much did that work, right? I mean, those things are all fine. But the point isn't to perfect yourself. It's really to perfect this capacity to love to perfect your love for this human life that each one has been given. And then when you do, you can go back into the world, so to speak, from the sitting or from the temple. Um, And you tend it with care, not with with grasping. Um, Like a garland of beautiful flowers, says the Buddha, make of your life a garland of beautiful deeds. And so, you know, you, this is the garden of the world and you weed it and you fertilize it and you give it water and you tend it as best you can and you plant seeds moment to moment. And those seeds, even if they're not bearing fruit when you're there, the beautiful thing about a seed is it's miraculous. Sometime or other, it's going to make a difference. And do you know why that is? Because it's all Interconnected. You know, not just the butterfly wing in South America that, you know, changes all the pattern, weather weather patterns, but in fact, it is interconnected. And so, the seeds that you plant ripple out to the people around you, the things that you touch, the ones that they touch, and the ones that the others touch, and and the the environment and that that everyone moves through, and it can't not affect the world. That's the beautiful thing. You get a chance to do something to the world with, with the way you drive or eat or speak or create or, or build or, or whatever it is that you do or parent. And so you plant these beautiful seeds, but you do it from a place of openness and mystery. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker, it's a big church, you know, and the, you know the, the billboard in front, and it said, follow God on Twitter right? Yeah. So that's about where we are in this age, right? Um, you remember your Buddha nature and mystery, and you also remember that April 15th you owe your taxes, you know, and so you have your Buddha nature and your social security number, and those are both to be tended to um, with the same care. This is from the poet Rilke. In order for a thing to speak to you, you must regard it for a certain time as the only one that exists. You know Georgia O'Keeffe, who did those extraordinary paintings of desert flowers and things like that? She She was very straightforward about it. She said, the reason I paint this way is so that people will actually see the flower because it's so small in the desert and I want them to get it, you know. I want them to really look at it. In order for a thing to speak to you, says Rilke, you must regard it for a certain time as the only one that exists. And through your laborious and exclusive love, the one and only phenomena is now placed at the center of the universe and in that incomparable place on that day, it is attended by angels. And there's something so important about being able to give attention fully to your own breath or your feelings or the body, the unique body that one and only in the whole galaxy, there has never been someone like you over all of infinite time. Isn't that wild? And so you look, wow, look this. Look at this one, and look at that flower, and that one, and that one, you know. And you're there with it to tend and care with a respect, and that's a wild one, and that's a kind of mean one, you know. <laughs> They're out there, I assure you, you know. And that's a loving one. And you see all the flowers, you know, and then you see which ones you want to water. Um, there's something about being able to be in this world with a sense of spaciousness and mystery, an inner balance of a loving awareness that's really who you are. And then you can allow the changes and the cycles that make up every human life, winter and spring and birth and death, happen all the time with a gracious heart. You become wise. And that... Is really what the world needs. It actually, if it needs anything from you, it needs your wisdom, you know, and your compassion or your love. And I think that's really why doing the practices that we do are um, are important because they teach us how to do that. <laughs>